Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is sponsored by Vegas.com. Vegas.com, your summer vacation is just a click away. Find great deals on hotels, shows, tours, and VIP treatment at top clubs. Go to Vegas.com right now and enter the promo code GIST for 10% off everything but air hotel packages. That's Vegas.com and the promo code GIST. It's Friday, June 26th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Today and yesterday, Nino Scalia, leading judicial light of the societal declinist set, got off some good ones. He's like Rex Reed. When a movie's good, Rex Reed just likes it. But when it's bad, Rex Reed is delicious. A Scalia majority opinion, it's punctuated with a gavel, a Scalia dissent. It sounds like meow. For instance, the words of Justice Kennedy's opinion in today's gay marriage ruling were compared to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. Meow. And yesterday's Obamacare victory was jiggery pokery. Jiggery pokery. I mean, is this just some mumbo jumbo who uses to bait the mamby pamby wishy-washy pals all higgly piggly? It is not. In fact, it seems, if anything, influenced by members of parliament. Because yesterday, Chris Bryant, an MP and the UK Shadow Secretary for Culture, so this is the guy whose job it is to throw shade, he said this in reaction to the news that FIFA chief Sepp Blatter is now claiming he never actually resigned. MP Chris Bryant said, Sepp Blatter's antics remind me not so much of the hokey cokey as Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. The hokey cokey? I mean, it was written, maybe it's the hockey cocky. No, it is the hokey cokey. And here's the hokey cokey. The hokey cokey is what Brits call the hokey pokey. Who knew? Well, now you do. And that's what it's all about. What the show is all about today is 1990. We climb the billboard charts with Chris Malamphy. I spiel about the Palin who will not give pregnancy a pause. But first, ask your nearest hippie. It's a landmark ruling and that's no applesauce. Back to the courts. We go beneath the robes with Dahlia Lithwick. Please note, Dahlia Lithwick does not literally go beneath the robes. A couple of landmark, gigantic rulings have come down in the last couple days. We knew either way they would be gay marriage, Obamacare, 
decided. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate. She's the host of the Amicus Brief. She joins me now. Hello, Dahlia. Hello, Mike. And so let's start with the big headline, the Raisin Reserve. (laughs) (laughs) That was a couple days ago. (laughs) <laughs> the government's coming for your raisins. Hide your women in raisins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually did want to talk about the gay marriage ruling Obergfell versus Hodges. Is are there any ambiguities here? We could just interpret this as gay marriage cannot be banned for any reason in the United States any anywhere ever. It is a big, big win. I think that a lot of folks in the LGBT rights community are a little disappointed because they were hoping that Justice Kennedy would finally draw some lines. He'd say, you know, we're using strict scrutiny from now on. We're going to do this under the Equal Protection Clause and not uh, the Due Process Clause. None of that happened. So I think if you want clear, if you want a clarion, you know, every judge from now on, look at discrimination against gay and lesbians under this test. They didn't get it. And Mm -hmm. I think that might be the slight reservation you're hearing in my voice. But without a doubt, this was a huge monster win. Every single state ban struck down and locating in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, for the first time, you know, gay couples have the right to enjoy exactly the same. Insert gauzy phrases here. You know, what Kennedy really goes all out talking about you know, the essence of dignity and the kinds of things that drives Justice Scalia bonkers. But I think that there's really a feeling that whatever marriage is, whatever's beautiful and sanctified about it should be open to everyone. Yeah, Kennedy got touchy-feely. Scalia likes to remain brainy, no way But if you can, for a second, delineate the difference between maybe what gay marriage proponents or gay rights proponents had wanted. Are you saying that there's a slight opening to uh, concoct a or draft an anti-gay marriage bill that could stand up? I don't think so. I mean, I think the opening that really is here, and you see it both in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion and some of the dissents, is there is Justice Kennedy saying, religious people, if you have a conscience objection, Mm -hmm. heads up, we are not stepping on your toes. And Justice Alito talks about that very strongly in his separate dissent where he says, you know, now, from now on, if you have objections to gay marriage, you can only whisper it, you know, because you're going to be called a bigot. Uh, So I think there's an awareness that there is barreling down toward us, Mike, these big conscience clauses, these religious freedom objections. I think that clearly the majority opinion, and some conservative groups are celebrating this, carves out space for objectors to object and to not be forced to perform gay marriages, uh, to not have their uh, religious beliefs trammeled. I think that's the opening that Kennedy leaves. And some groups are saying, look, look, clearly this is uh, an opinion that gave gay couples everything they wanted, but left open the door for objectors to object and to claim constitutional protection for that. Okay, let's say next month, Ruth Bader Ginsburg steps down, Kennedy steps down, President Cruz is elected, uh, changes the the nature of the Supreme Court. How does stare decisis work? Does this ruling mean that it can't be overruled if there's a different court in a year? Well, it depends on which justice you ask. Some of the justices like Clarence Thomas don't believe that stare decisis ever worked. They just don't believe that wrong precedents should be applied. And we've been fighting about that in other contexts all term. I don't think you have 
five, six justices who would say, eh, new court, new rules, and simply overturn this. And one thing that I think really animates this case, Mike, and it's important, in reliance on what states have done, people have gotten married. They have paid taxes as couples. They have adopted children. And so I think the court is very anxious, both in the majority and in the dissent, about the fact that this ship has already sailed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a year, it will have sailed further. So a little bit of what you're seeing in the dissent is this is irredeemable. It is not recoverable. This is forever. Right. It's not the case of, oh, this is a legalism that we reverse. This is how lives are lived. And even the conservative justices do look at that. And also worth flagging that Antonin Scalia's choice words about the Kennedy opinion today included, it's as pretentious as its contents is egoistic. So, ouch. So, but people like Scalia. It's a good point. How's Scalia ever going to convince Kennedy on anything close? Or is that not Scalia's mode? Well, you know, there's really interesting uh, anecdotal evidence that shows that Sandra Day O'Connor's drift from the right to the center and even on some issues to the left was very much facilitated by Scalia insulting her all the time. Mm. So it's not unheard of that Scalia can literally drive people into the arms of the other camp. And I think it's worth sort of thinking about whether uh, one of the things that played out in this case, at least in uh, probably less so in King, but uh, in Obergefell, was just knowing that Scalia is going to rip into you and say you're a bad writer and an <laughs> idiot anyway. So just write big. Swing yeah. for the fences. Yeah. I have noted that a world where Antonin Scalia is a brilliant, obstreperous grammarian, raising great points, being difficult and having no effect on public policy, that's a world I'd sign up for. I like that world. <laughs> I think that means there's a chair for him on AM radio, right? I love, Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Hell, I'd give him a show on FM, on NPR. <laughs> I want him to be able to convince me with argument, not compel me with law. I have long said, Mike, that the day Antonin Scalia leaves the Supreme Court is the day I leave the Supreme Court beat. I... I just I adore him. He's so deliciously quotable. And he had a great, great moment today um, in in the chamber when the opinions in the marriage cases were done and everybody was kind of like, can I cry now? Can I leave? I don't know. I'm going crazy. And the chief justice said, and now Antonin Scalia has the opinion in this kind of fairly trivial guns case. Yeah. And Scalia literally leaned forward and said, don't leave. <laughs> so he just wanted to be able to read his opinion without people fleeing. <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick covers the court, as long as Antonin Scalia is on it, but covers the courts for Slate. Dahlia Lithwick is also the host of the Amicus podcast. Check it out. New one this weekend. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Mike. So you're looking to get gay married? And now that your health care is insured, you're ready to cut loose? Consequences be damned during the bachelor party? Where can you go for all of that? Vegas. It's Vegas. You know, my parents live right outside of Vegas. There are many fine cultural attractions. But of course, when everyone talks about Vegas, they talk about things like the Strip Gun Club. I thought that was a strip club and a gun club combined, but I was looking on Vegas.com. It's just the first gun club on the strip. That's all it is. They have all the attractions, all the discounts, and it's all on Vegas.com. Things like 84 bucks off at the Bellagio or 90 bucks off at Caesars or 100 bucks off at Cirque du Soleil. Vegas.com is the way to book Vegas. Everyone knows 
insiders get the best deals. This makes you an insider. Check out Vegas.com for shows, tours, attractions, restaurants, VIP bottle service at the top clubs. And with the Vegas.com app, everything Vegas is in your phone. So go to Vegas.com right now, click on the microphone in the top right corner and enter my code GIST to receive an extra 10% off everything but air hotel packages. That's Vegas.com. Click on the microphone and get your bonus savings by using the code GIST. Book today. From time to time, we check in on the number one songs of an era, or at least a year, but sometimes that year stands for the era. Our guide in these endeavors is Chris Malamphy. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate.com. And he knows Billboard like, apparently, Phil Collins knew Billboard in the year 1990. We're talking about 1990, and I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, Chris, why we're here, I mean, given that opposites attract. I, I like cusp years. I can't say that this is a year I particularly like, but I like to explore cusp years because because they show a moment when everything's about to change, but it hasn't changed yet. Uh, you know, in in music history, 1991 is one of those big years where, you know, everything starts to change. The Everything from, you know, Nirvana breaking to, you know, kind of the, the birth of Lollapalooza and alternative radio to uh, the way Billboard compiled the charts. Uh, you know, SoundScan starts in 1991. 1991's a big year if you follow music or follow the charts. So 1990 is kind of the calm before the storm. It's got some high highs and low lows. Their number ones have high highs and low lows. Exactly. I think. Yes. Exactly. Yes. There's there's songs here that I think are among the best songs of their era. There are songs here that I would rather never hear again. Yes. And there are songs that get made fun of, like I'm thinking of Wilson Phillips' Hold On, right, which shows up in Harold and Kumar. But it's a great song. It's anthemic. It's doing exactly what it wants to do, I think. Really, Mike? Really? I think it is. Really? Yeah, that would be one of the ones that I don't know that I ever need to hear again, but unfortunately it seems to follow me throughout life. Hold On is the number one song of 1990, according to Billboard. It, but it, it was only number one for a week. Uh, two weeks, okay. briefly, but it had a long chart run. Right. It, and it was, as you will recall, if you lived through the year 1990, rather omnipresent. It was their breakthrough. Of course, Wilson Phillips, what's interesting about them is they are a second-generation pop hitmaker act. Their parents all had number one hits in the 60s. I'm talking, of course, about the Wilson sisters, who were the children of Brian Wilson, of the Beach Boys, and we're also talking about China Phillips, daughter of Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas of Monday Monday fame. Monday, Monday. This was the beginning of quite a short but very hit-packed run for them. Uh, this wasn't even their last number one hit in 1990. They uh, they had another number one hit later in the year called Release Me. Uh, Similar to Hold On. Yeah. In fact, the angry answer, just as this land is your land, is the angry answer to God bless America. Hold on, please release me. What else do you want from us, Wilson Phillips? I know, they were a very uh, tormented group.
So two number ones for them. Uh, they they had a couple more hits in 1991. They had a follow-up album, and then they were pretty much done. So it was kind of like they're one of these acts that when you think about this early 1990s moment before you know the sound of the 90s kind of kicked in, they had their moment, and then that was it. Now, speaking of scions of greatness, you also have Nelson's Can't Live Without Your Love. And affection. Yes. So uh, Nelson, let's see, they looked like a hair metal act. Right. And they kind of had that appeal. They had that sort of dial MTV appeal. If, if you remember from the late 80s, you know, if you tuned into dial MTV any day, it was basically a parade of a few rappers and a ton of hair metal bands. So they had that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, a popular appeal. Yet they sounded for all the world like... I don't know, a, a slightly up-tempo, power-pop, even a slightly folky act, and Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. I, actually, a pretty fun pop record. Yeah, they had just absurdly long hair, and they were absurdly pretty boys. And I'm sorry, I'm burying the lead, as you pointed out. They are <laughs> the they are is... the, the Nelson is from Ricky Nelson, yes. uh, and Ricky Nelson, who had the the first number one hit on the Hot 100 back in 1958. Poor little fool, and uh, these are his kids uh, forming a group just called Nelson. So where do the hits of uh, Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson, where do those fall in those singers' careers? So you've just hit on arguably the two biggest artists of 1990. For Mariah Carey, it's the very beginning. It's mm-hmm. literally the beginning. The uh, Vision of Love, uh, her summer 1990 hit, uh, just a total smash, was also her first single, period. Uh, she had been discovered famously by uh, Sony record mogul Tommy Mottola, later married him. She had an amazing voice, as we all know. Everybody talks about it to this day, the five-octave range. Uh, Uh, She hits some ungodly notes in Vision of Love. I have been a hot and cold fan of Mariah Carey over the years, I'll be honest, but I gotta say Vision of Love, if I had to pick like five Mariah Carey songs I would put in the vault, Vision of Love is a pretty terrific song. The vault uh, means they can't come out again and hear the light of day? <laughs> the vault would be songs I guess I would tolerate again, and and, and Vision of Love is uh, is definitely one one for the ages for her, and, and, and it's an important one for her career because it's, it's what broke her. It was the first of five consecutive number one singles she had to begin her career. Frankly, the D-Day attack was not planned as well as the launch of Mariah Carey's career. Sony Music... Well, it was rain the day before D-Day. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Sony Music was determined to have its own Whitney Houston. Whitney, who had, you know, kind of brought in diva pop in the last half mm-hmm. of the 1980s, and by God, they were going to do it, and they they succeeded beyond their wildest imaginings. Before 1990s, even, actually, as a follow-up, number one with Love Takes Time, there were three more number one hits in 1991, and, and to this day, Mariah has the second most number one hits in Hot 100 history with 18, behind only the Beatles. So, That's amazing. Yeah, she has quite the career. Oh, and we did skip past Janet Jackson, but I want to go back. So 1990, was that the dawn of the Rhythm Nation? What was going on then? So Rhythm Nation uh, was arguably the biggest album of 1990. Mm-hmm. It was sort of omnipresent all year. It spun off seven top five hits, seven. Wow. Uh, it, it began that run at the end of 1989 with the number one hit, Miss You Much. But 90 was kind of where 
most of them, the bulk of them hit. Like she was already in the top five as the year began uh, with uh, the title track Rhythm Nation, which peaked at number two. But then she had two number one hits during the year. One was Escapade. An incredible run for her, and that record, that album, Rhythm Nation, was basically lodged in the top ten all year long. So that that kind of uh, dominated the year. So Prince isn't on the chart. Oh, but Prince is on the chart in the form of Nothing Compares to You, which Sinead O'Connor takes to number one. She has this just amazing number one hit, which is a, a cover of a Prince ballad, not one that Prince had uh, written for himself. He'd written it for one of his stable of acts called The Family. They had recorded it. It was basically an obscure Prince record. And she turns it into a smash uh, with, again, to speak about music videos, a, a video that is now indelible. The video actually won the MTV Moonman statue for video of the year. Uh, the video largely consists of a tight close up of Sinead's face. And she you know, manages to cry in the middle of the of the record. Uh, it, it wound up being one of the most critically acclaimed songs of the year, critically acclaimed videos of the year, albums of the year, uh, and actually a number one hit. It's rare that you have uh, one of those sort of, you know, across the board uh, smashes like that. Prince, of course, wrote many hits for others, for Sheila E. He wrote, you know, The Glamorous Life, among other hits. For The Bangles, he wrote Manic Monday. Uh, you know, Tom Jones famously had a top 40 cover of Kiss. But Nothing Compares to You is, is the only one of the six compositions by Prince to go to number one that was not actually a recording by him. Madonna with Vogue. This thing was transcendent. I think Vogue goes down as one of her greatest hits, certainly one of her most iconic hits. It was a hit that was originally intended as a B-side, believe it or not. It was uh, co-written and co-produced by Shep Pettibone, who had uh, you know, made his name in dance music circles and produced some other hits. They brought him in uh, to work with Madonna on uh, the last single from her prior album, the Like a Prayer album, which had spun off several hits. And he started working on the record that became Vogue, and it was intended as a B-side to the final single, uh, a song called uh, Keep It Together. But when the executives at Warner Brothers Records heard what he had produced with Madonna with Vogue, they said, no, 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 this is way too good. And it became an A-side, released in 1990 and tied, oddly enough, to the film that Madonna was starring in that year, the Warren Beatty film Dick Tracy.
mean, as for voguing as a dance, I mean, it had been an underground sensation in uh, gay clubs, especially in the trans community for several years. You know, Madonna, some would say stole, some would say appropriated, some would say popularized this form of dance just a year before uh, Jenny Livingston's documentary, uh, Paris is Burning, which also helped uh, bring voguing out as, a, as an art form to the wider culture. Now, if you were setting a movie in 1990, especially a movie of the comedy genre, and you wanted to communicate that it was 1990, there's nothing you could do that would be more on the nose than to have Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, a number one song of 1990. Yes. In that soundtrack. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. It is the first rap song of any kind to go to number one. There have been several near misses. Uh, Walk This Way by Run DMC was a top five hit in uh, 1986. By the way, I see a through line. Gotta have white people involved in the rap song. You notice that, do you? Yeah. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance. Crush the speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly. When I play a dope melody, anything less That was Chris Malanfi. Uh, He comes, we pick a year, and he talks about what the number one singles of that year sounded like, what it smelled like, what the itch of our shirts were like back then. Thank you, Chris. It was great stopping, collaborating, and listening to you, Mike. And now the spiel, it preggers belief. Bristol Palin is pregnant again. The 24-year-old didn't name who the father is, but did herald the blessed event with these words on her blog. Honestly, I've been trying to keep my chin up with this one. When life gets tough, there's no other option but to get tougher. I know this has been and will be a huge disappointment to my family, to my close friends, and to many of you. Actually, that last part sounds so much cooler when played over the thump da thump da thump celeb news music employed by celebutainment outlets. I know this has been and will be a huge disappointment to my family, to my close friends, and to many of you. Now, Bristol Palin never asked to become a household name. She never asked to be the daughter of a vice presidential candidate. She never asked for her status as teen mom to be a national point of debate. And when she was asked in 2009 on Good Morning America about her status as a well-known American, here's what she said. I don't see myself as a celebrity. I don't want to be one. But I think that using this, using this experience in my life to help others is just, it's, I think it's a blessing. The form of the help was the very thing she was promoting on that appearance. She had signed on as a spokesperson for teen pregnancy prevention. It later came to light that the Candies Foundation paid her more than $260,000 in 2011 to be their abstinence ambassador. Here, in an ad that has all the thespianic flair of a hostage video, here she engages in a battle of the wits with the Jersey Shore's Mike, the situation Sorrentino. I know you're all about that abstinence thing, you know, but I mean, come on, B. Palin, are you serious? Like, you're not gonna hook up with, like, before you're married? For real. For real. For real, for real? For real, for real, for real. Unreal. 
Sitch and Brist knew each other because they were both contestants on Dancing with the Stars. Another in the long line of evidence that Bristol's self-perception as a non-celebrity had run smack into America's insistence that, damn it, she'd just become a celebrity and pursue celebrity she did after she danced with the stars. Oh, wait. She was a star, I guess, technically. Bristol starred in a Lifetime show. I did not know this existed. Something called Bristol Palin colon Life's a Trip. Trip is the name of her then three-year-old son. I will play a clip from that show. But first, one other clip to consider. Here is ABC's Good Morning America profiling Bristol during the press tour of her tell-all memoir in 2011. Robin Roberts says this of Bristol's relationship with the Palin family. Bristol is fiercely protective of them. Okay, with that in mind, here's the reality show. One year later, Trip acting out on camera. time you're gonna get soap in your mouth got it you think you're the producers bleeped it out but made clear what the word was the three-year-old said go away you faggot three-year-olds do not know what those words mean but they do repeat slurs they hear and more to the poor parenting palin point bristol is harming her son by putting his behavior out there for the world to see indeed for selling it to the marketplace. And this is why Bristol Palin is annoying, no, sad, sure, horrible, yeah, beside the point, a liar, well, duh, she's having a baby, even though she made a quarter of a million dollars preaching abstinence. She's pregnant, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's an hypocrisy. Bristol Palin is instructive, that's what I wanted to say. We know that in the niche-filled media, once a celebrity, always a celebrity. And we also know that if you espouse some sort of vaguely formed Christian belief and mix it in with a hatred of the lamestream media, some small but hypothetically monetizable portion of America will pay attention. The number of the cable channel that you're on will get higher and higher, like Sarah Palin's Alaska, that show is on TLC. But now Sarah Palin's Amazing America which is a show that exists, is on the Sportsman Channel. The tragedy of Bristol Palin isn't that she and her family are clowns. It's that the rest of the media is a willing circus. She was given a platform to at least talk about her life, espouse her abstinence-only message, advance the fiction that she's been handed an opportunity to use her circumstance to inspire. Now, charlatans like anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy are at least widely dismissed as charlatans. But when Bristol Palin makes the media rounds, she's given a lot more, not respect, but, but sympathy. She wasn't treated like a loudmouth know-nothing who got famous for taking her clothes off. She got treated like a single mom who didn't ask to be thrust into the spotlight. Hey, we don't want to come down too hard on a teen mother. And yeah, it must have been pretty hard for any person to handle that kind of attention. And sure, no matter what we think of your mother's mastery of the issues, or even your own occasional spouting off on ill-informed anti-gay or anti-feminist screeds, the attitude of the media was, you're a young mom, a teen mom, yeah, rich, privileged, extremely atypical teen mom, but still, your lot in life is a lot worse than many of us would wish on ourselves. But now, let's look back. Crystal Palin lied to us, and I don't mean about the abstinence. She did worse than lie. In fact, she engaged in propaganda. Now, saying that you aspire to abstinence, that's not in and of itself hypocrisy. If the aspiration is honest, that's a respectable choice. 
of course, for a 24-year-old woman to still be beating the don't do it drum is a little weird. But the fact is that Bristol Palin wasn't struggling to be abstinent. She never believed in it in the first place. She told Greta Van Susteren in her very first interview while holding a newborn trip, she told her that abstinence isn't totally realistic. And then when she got a quarter of a million dollar contract, she said those words were taken out of context. She also said, and I didn't know any of this because like any right-thinking American, I generally wear my Palin family filter when the Palin pollen levels get too high. But she also said her story was when she got pregnant that she was on birth control, but the birth control didn't work, implying that it was the birth control that failed her. But that's not what happened. Pressed by Dr. Drew, she said she didn't take the pill every day, so she used the birth control wrong. And the claim of birth control advocates, which is to say scientists, people with sense, the claim is not that if used improperly it can stop pregnancy. The claim is it needs to be used properly, otherwise it isn't birth control. She capitalized on the improper use. And in fact, her whole story about why she was on birth control, that she only started taking it to stop menstrual cramps, I don't know whether to believe her. I mean, it would have been hard for her, given her position and what she was espousing, to say, I was on birth control so I could have sex with my boyfriend and not get pregnant. Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. She wanted to keep having sex with her boyfriend, but she didn't want to get pregnant. She also didn't want to be seen as consciously endorsing birth control. This all makes her a terrible spokesperson for any issue involving reproduction. The Candies Foundation should ask for their money back. The networks, who are right now no doubt competing for the next interview in the tawdry saga, should withdraw or take a more challenging tone next time. And the Palin family should maybe be wary of the benefits of a few hundred thousand dollars in media exposure versus the hurdles you're establishing for the next generation of Palins who will have a harder time breaking free of the perceived Palin persecution complex. I never pay attention to Bristol Palin, but for a few moments, I did, so you wouldn't have to. I think now I am done with this story, and in this case, going forward, abstinence will really be quite pleasurable. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is not only amazing as the producer of The Gist, what really astounds is the hubris reflected in today's judicial pooch. Pooch, pooch, in the booch. Joe Meyer, the managing producer, never thought that intimacy and spirituality, whatever that means, were freedoms. Andy Bowers, Slate's executive producer, is not a genuine Westerner. California does not count. He is not a single evangelical Christian, a group that comprises about one quarter of Americans, or even a Protestant of any denomination, although he may be a Protestant of some denomination. It doesn't matter, though. Because of him, because of the unelected head of the Panoply Network, we move one step closer to being reminded of our impotence. The gist, as pretentious as its content, is egotistic. Thanks for listening.